Welcome to the Tusk Partners Group Dental Practice Fundamentals Podcast. 20 minutes devoted to giving you the tools and insights into how to best start, grow, or sell your business. Hello and welcome to all of our dental industry friends and colleagues. My name is Kevin Cumbus and I'm one of the co-founders here at Tusk. For those of you who aren't familiar with us and our work, we're a strategic consulting and M&A advisory firm that focuses exclusively in group dental practice. We work with entrepreneurial dentists along their journey from launch to scale to exit. My partners and I have a combined over 70 years of experience in the industry, and we focus our work exclusively in the group practice space. I think you're really going to enjoy today's show because it's all about M&A and the year that was. The COVID-impacted M&A year led to some of the most challenging and rewarding deals we've ever had the pleasure of working on. I'm joined by Ryan Mingus, director here with our group, and have a great conversation ahead of you. Thanks for dialing in and enjoy the show. Kevin Cumbus, co-founder and partner here at Tusk. I am joined today by Ryan Mingus, director of M&A here at Tusk. We are so happy to be back. It is finally 2021, and we survived COVID. It was a little worse for the wear, but we're here. Uh, yeah, I didn't sleep as much as I could have or should have. Yeah, I put on a couple pounds. I didn't. I didn't cut my hair as frequently as I should. It was. It was not the best year. For- yeah, look, looking back on here, I'm definitely going to have a lot of uh, regrets in some of the things I should have done. Working out being one of them. Yeah, sure. I'll tell you, so for, so for all of the, the, the sins of our personal uh, personal manners, it was a pretty remarkable year on the M&A front. Um, so we're going to take actually two episodes to unpack this. Today we'll do episode one. This will be a look back in, in 2020, the year that was. Uh, and we're going to take it step by step, looking through quarter by quarter uh, and how the year unfolded. And then we want you to stick around for episode two, where we will pull out the, the crystal ball that Ryan carries around with him in an old bowling ball case and, and get, let you know what, what he sees and what I see and, and let you know kind of what we're expecting in, in the year to come. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to this. Here we are in January, right? And, and there was a point in time just 12 months ago where you know you, you and I were sitting here talking about the business and, and, and where it was going. Uh, what do you recollect from, from those, those meetings and those conversations in early 2020? Wow, yeah. Looking back, so I joined the Tusk team January 20th and signed up, came all the way from California here to, to Charlotte, North Carolina, to the Tusk headquarters, wide-eyed and bushy-tailed, ready to, to take on the world. And at that point, I think Tusk already had a a whole lot of clients signed up and ready to go to market and at the same time probably signing up a new new client for on sell side advisory literally every week. So, you know, I I thought that this was just the the world that you lived in and the the business that you all had created. So from my perspective, you know, things couldn't have looked rosier uh, in January. (laughs) I tell you it, it, it was, right? It was it was absolutely the world we lived in and and it felt like Everybody wanted to buy. Everybody was interested in either starting or, or buying a DSO. We had private equity groups calling 
you know, new private equity groups calling on a near daily basis, interested in investing inside the market. And we'd, we'd heard of these rumors of this thing called COVID-19. And, and we, you know, it started in China. And then, then we saw, I, th- I think the U.S. media really picked it up when Italy was so severely impacted. You know, I can very clearly remember thinking, well, that's a really interesting problem they have over there. And I'll, I'll just own this. I did not fully comprehend what was coming our way. Well, I don't think you were alone in that regard. <laughs> I think <laughs> well, that we, makes uh... you feel good. At least I was a good company. Yeah, I, I, look, I, I don't think anybody could have seen this. No. Um, and when it hit, you know, part of me remembers it grinding to a halt. And then another piece of me feels like it was almost the door shut quickly on the M&A markets. I mean, we had more deals in market than we'd had in the history of the business, more deals signing up a bigger pipeline than we'd ever had, and more buyers bidding up these assets. Mm-hmm. And then when, when dental practices uh, began to shut down, buyers uh, really hit pause, right? Yes. I remember three distinct positions. Um, one was, look, we're going to get this deal closed. And we're going to find a way to get it closed. Um, position two was, hey, let's wait and see. Uh, we don't really know what's going on. Let's let's kind of weather the storm a little bit. Let's see what happens, and, and we'll, we'll get back to you. And then position three was, I'm going to quit returning your phone calls. I'm going to duck and cover. I'm going to see if there's any way for me to look after myself here and and you know kind of not be damned the rest of the world, but really looking after themselves. So we, we kind of had those those three positions, and it left you and me with a lot of time to, to talk to buyers. I mean, do you recall some of those conversations you were having with the buy side? Yeah, I think there was a lot of confusion all around, honestly. I think those were three distinct positions, but oftentimes you would talk to them and they would feel that they were, you know, Taking position one, and then several days later, not, you know, not even a week later, they're they're out at option three and they're furloughed. So, I mean, we we had some some difficult conversations, and you know, had to, to to be great peers and colleagues to some people weathering some tough times, um, some furloughed friends, and it was tumultuous for sure. Yeah, so the the impact was not just in dentistry; it was actually in the DSO world as well, right? We saw furloughs inside of business development teams, uh, people who we talk with on a daily basis no longer having jobs. We saw business development teams, um, they don't have the, their team any longer. Well, they also don't have debt to actually buy these businesses. And, and to me, that was one of the really interesting takeaways about who really is in charge inside of these businesses. Uh, for the longest time, there had been so much success inside of the DSOs that the business development team and, the, and that committee, along with the executive team, could make decisions. That they they had a high degree of confidence were going to be rubber stamped and approved by their private equity sponsor and their lender. Right. And all of that changed when COVID hit. And, and we we would be working on deals and getting them re-engineered or restructured in a way that we thought would be palatable to lenders and be palatable to the private equity sponsors. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we were trying to be creative, trying to be more collaborative than ever to get these deals done or, or get them to a structure that, one, our, our clients were comfortable with, and then, two, what the, the banks and or private equity groups were, were going to be comfortable with. So um, there were a lot of you know trials and tribulations and, and whiteboarding and brainstorming and, and collaboration and, and deals started to get done eventually. But um, yeah, there was uh, there was 
three, four months there where we weren't sure what the pathway to close was going to look like for for a number of our deals. Yeah, you mentioned that word collaboration. I do remember, you know, working with a, a select handful of DSOs that absolutely were collaborative in this process. They were transparent about where they were, transparent about what they could do, um, brought leadership onto phone calls with you and me to, to help uh, strengthen that relationship. And, and ultimately, we were able to get deals closed with those buyers. Um, we did see uh, some some deal terms change. We, we saw uh, the emergence or re-emergence uh, of an earnout, I, can, can you can you unpack that a little bit? Can you tell everybody what an earnout what what an earnout is? Why we didn't see it a lot in 2019, sure. and, and how it came to be again in 2020? Yeah, so it was kind of before my time where earnouts came out of vogue, but you know there were still a couple standard buyers that use an earnout, and and you know historically it had just been a mechanism to create alignment and make sure that that selling doctor or partnering doctor is uh, you know has a little bit of toothiness for the first couple years of the deal so um, you know making sure that the business performs as it historically had um, that was a mechanism used now we kind of feel like the emergence of the joint venture equity sort of took the place of that and earnouts kind of went away by 2019. Um, now, enter 2020 with COVID, um, our clients were, were seeking 2019 valuations. The businesses on a, you know, a, a pre-COVID basis were, were performing great and you know, coming out of COVID or entering into COVID with a shutdown. Now you've got all this noise in the data and the financial statements. So from the buyer's perspective, you know, they wanted to make sure that they could get these deals done. And the sellers, the only way to get the deal done was by having a pre-COVID valuation. Well, in, in an effort to make sure that the buy side is protected, there was an introduction of the earnout. In, in the form of you know, cash at close and sometimes retained equity. And that it, was, it allowed us to get deals done uh, based on a pre-COVID valuation and then have the buyer be protected uh, based on the performance of the business post-close. So maybe it's a 10% earn out, 20% earn out. Maybe it's in the cash, maybe it's in the cash and the equity, but it, it allowed um, banks to get comfortable writing writing checks. Yeah, you, you and I were talking before this about you know how large the earnout was initially. So you know, we could have the deals under a letter of intent, then the earnout would be introduced sometime around call it April, May, June. The buyers would come back and say, look, we've got a pathway, we've got our, our private equity sponsor and our lender on board, but here's the structure we're gonna need to use to get there. And it's a fifteen to twenty percent earnout. I mean, sure. we, we were seeing at first cuts at this at twenty percent. Yes. And we go, well, wait a minute. Practice is open. Let's look at year-over-year, same-month sales. And we're seeing improvements in the business. Um, and the buyers were quick to say, yeah, that feels like pent-up demand, though. So let's, let's, let's throw that month out. Yeah. And the next month would be up. Then the following month would be up. And, and slowly but surely, we, we, our clients put us in great positions to negotiate those earnouts way down or in, in many cases, away completely. Yeah, um, I think we were we were successful in that, but not every business was was up. As, as everybody on this you know listening knows, you know, we, not all of our, our clients were, were up year over year. So I mean, they, they still did exist, um, but we were able to make sure that we were getting the language bracketed in, so it's a range of a holdback 
at the LOI phase, and then we're going to re-rack these numbers and, re- and look at this one more time right at the closing table with the freshest set of financials we possibly could in an effort to reduce that earnout amount. And, and most buyers were, were open to that, that method. Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't – I long for the day when the earnout disappears again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I feel like the further we get away from the COVID shutdown months, the more likely we'll see that disappear. It, it's, it's something that I, I understand the necessity for it in, in this, call it, 2020 M&A environment, um, but, but really believe that equity in and of itself accomplishes the alignment that, that is needed between the seller and the buyer. And, and the earnout is just an unnecessary burden that ultimately is is just doesn't seem like a good fit for uh, hopefully for the pro forma valuations we'll be we'll be working on right um, all right so we we talked about Q one we talked a little bit about Q two and the reactions we had from buyers in Q three uh, what what began to change did did was it was it more of the same for Q two or or did you did you see more forward progress yeah well we we started to close deals so that was that was definitely progress from from you too <laughs> there were there were deals closed and 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 checks were being cut so so that was definitely good i definitely think the deals that we had in market were were taking longer to get through the process because of of these iterations of of letters of intent and things like that but you know People were moving forward in Q3 100%. It started to feel as though there was light at the end of the tunnel in Q3. You know, coming out of the summer, the, it just felt that, you know, economies were opening back up, restaurants were, were open, all these – all practices were open back up for non-emergencies. Like it felt like we were on the right track and we had absorbed everything. Uh, look, we were also signing up new clients in Q3. Sure. And, and, and these were not clients that – had thrown their hands up in exhaustion and said, COVID's been hard. I'm down 20%. Get me out of here. These were groups that said, you know, I've, I've actually survived and come out of COVID stronger, but now recognize I want to be a part of a bigger group and I want to leverage somebody else's balance sheet to help me take advantage of opportunities in the market today. I mean, I remember signing up a sizable number of clients in Q3, closing those transactions, and really getting some win back in the sales yeah. uh, in the third quarter. Now, the fourth quarter it was it was a little bit of a blur. I, I mean, the, we I remember talking with our team back in October, and on our on our weekly check in saying, "Look, I, I know everybody's got." Thanksgiving plans and Christmas plans, but get ready. We're going to see a tremendously busy end of year. We were all still working from home at that point. Everybody was, you know, in their in their respective homes and 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 doing everything they could to to advance the transactions forward. But one of the most remarkable things that happened at the end of the year was, I believe, we closed six transactions in a twenty-four hour period of time. And over the month, it was you know more more than that, but that didn't come easy. Uh, that that was a, a culmination of hundreds of hours of analytical work, conversations, working with our clients to keep the deals glued together, right. and and really helping the buyers understand what it was going to what was going to be required to get the deal closed. Yeah, and and just even to unpack all six of those deals, all came on board at. at 
various times during the year. You know, some of them were under letter of intent pre-COVID, but because of you know issues with the buy side and or a, a number of factors, you know, it, it got pushed to the end of the year, the last two days of the year. So other ones, you know, we signed up in Q3 and we're able to, to move them forward and get them to a close in Q4. It was it was really incredible, like the hodgepodge of, of deals and and how they all came to to that point and you know the the benefit to everybody to get the deal done by the end of the year for for tax implications and for for a a number of different reasons yeah yeah that's a good point because there was a deal that came online that i think we closed uh within 50 some odd days of actually of actually executing the letter of intent so they they all had their own lifespan for sure um, looking back over the comps and, and the history, and we're we're, we're going to have some of this information up in a webinar. So if you if you if you saw the webinar, you were able to see these comps in the past. Um, but you know, looking back over the deals we did, group practices in 2020, based on the EBITDA ranges, really traded and closed right around those 2019 levels. You know, we, we did deals, you know, around nine and a quarter X to six X uh, in the group practice space. Yeah, the appetite for for very you know high value assets w- was still really high, so we didn't see much of a shakeup in in that world. Yeah, I think it's you know, I, I, I've, sometimes I oversimplify these things, but as an econ major, I always bring it back to supply and demand, and, and we are lucky enough to to work with just some of the best, strongest businesses out there with solid, long-standing, great EBITDA, along with strong same-store sales growth that that is connected to an excellent leadership team. And and when you get to work with clients like that, they're always going to be oversubscribed. Absolutely. um, So just just kind of looking at the supply and demand equation, demand for businesses like that will, will remain high just because there's so few. Absolutely. So 2020 ended absolutely with a bang. I think everybody we talked with, be it attorneys or people who do what we do in the buy side, everybody kind of breathed a sigh of relief when it was all over and done with. Yeah, well, I think Q1 is going to be a banger quarter as well. I think we've got a lot of things that, that pushed over into Q1. And I've been talking to a lot of attorneys. You know, yes, they, they feel that they've gotten quite a bit off their plate, but but nobody's Scheduling any vacations anytime. I, soon, I was going to say so. we, this is we can't. Uh, there's there's no uh, Corona and and uh, hammocks heading our way. No, no. It's I think there's a <laughs> there's a lot of activity going on right now with with respect to getting more of these deals closed that 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 got sort of hangovers. Yeah, I, 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 you used that term before the hangover from last year. Um, yeah, there's there the deals that that didn't didn't quite get there. You know, there there are three deals I'm thinking of in particular. Two of them were, were tied to strategics that didn't get done. We remarketed those transactions and found financial buyers for them uh, that came in well above what the strategic was willing to pay. And so we spent a lot of time uh, on the large groups, Ryan, but a lot of our work is kind of in the solo space as well, doctors who want to partner with strategics. Speak a little bit about that, that side of the market. Yeah, so obviously a lot of folks come to us, single owner, multiple doctor, you know, big box, maybe maybe two locations with a satellite, you know, things of that. So so smaller smaller solo owner practices um, come to us in, in general dentistry and in specialty. And we had a lot of those close um, at the end of the year. That made up, you know, a good portion of those six deals that closed in the last twenty four hours of the year. So um, 
we talked about how the, the valuations for our other groups, the large groups, stayed relatively the same. I feel like there was a little bit of softness in, in some of those – the single location, maybe half of a turn of, of, on, on things that we took to market. Now, people held firm on things that were under letter of intent pre-COVID, but it was the new things that came to market in Q3 and in Q4 where the valuations are coming in for those general dentistry practices. And I think it goes to your, to your comment about the, the law of supply and demand. There are probably a lot of general dentists looking for partnership, perhaps not through us, but but out there. So I think the buy side, honestly, it was is a bit of a, a buy, buyer's market coming out of COVID in the GP space, the solo practicing GP space. So that might have been where some of the softness came from. But but we really feel that that is not indicative on a go forward basis, or it's trending anywhere. We yeah, just, I just think it was to your point, it was timing uh, about where they are in in their life and what the market is honestly bearing out with respect to the supply of solo owner dentists. I think we're also going to see a lot more of solo practices give a give a second look to partnering with the strategic mm-hmm. with the larger DSO. Yeah, um, I'm sure they have friends and colleagues that they go to dental meetings with that are affiliated with the large DSOs and heard from those dentists what their experience was like during COVID, the guidance that they were given, the support that they were given. Everything from how to handle the HR matters or how to handle the PPP loan, it, it was it can be lonely out there as a solo doctor. And attorneys aren't cheap. Absolutely, advising your attorney regularly more often than you ever had your CPA more often than you like. These folks were going out there and paying for all these resources out of their own pocket. The groups that. Or folks that were part of groups already get to tap into that as part of you know the benefit of, of being in part of the, the bigger groups. So. Yeah, well said. I, I just I think we're going to see the light bulb moment where solo doctors who who had never ever ever could, thought they would sell to a DSO begin to soften on that consideration yeah. and, and and start to to think about what affiliation might feel like. Yep. Well, you know, again, back to the comps for a minute. When I looked back. Most of our deals last year were in the specialty space, right. um, 60 65% by deal count, and uh, slightly more than that by total enterprise value. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think we, we pick up deals in that space because we frankly had a lot of success in that space. Um, what were your takeaways around the specialty market looking back at 2020? Yeah, I think just they were better suited than general dentistries, quite frankly, from a, a performance perspective. So if you think about orthodontics, for example, they've got payments coming in regularly. So so cash didn't just shut off when production stopped. There was going to be pent up demand. So so ortho from a performance on a on a PL standpoint month to month was strong. And then coming out, now the seasonality went away with ortho this year because like kids in school, out of school, you know, all of those things went away. So once folks were able to get back into the office for non-emergency cases, People were going in and taking their kids. So I think Ortho performed extremely well through the shutdown mm-hmm. and coming out of the shutdown. They rebounded really quickly. They just had to work a couple extra hours or an, an extra day a week. You know, Looking at some of the groups we have in market, their, their total days worked is going to be the same this year than it was in, or in 2020 than it was in 2019. They just got there quite a bit differently. Coming, coming out of COVID by working five days a week instead of four or, or whatever the situation needed to bear. And then looking at oral surgery, for example, that, that was open 
in an effort to keep people out of the ER, um, oral surgery was was open and, and quite frankly could be qualified as, as emergency care for the majority of the procedures that they do. So they didn't shut down the same to the same level as some of these other groups because uh, the nature of their work was was emergent in nature. So we did a ton of oral surgery deals this year. We I did mean, a, a ton of them, and and what I was just couldn't believe. You know, everybody was looking at EBITDA differently. Everyone will remember uh, pre-COVID EBITDA, right? Kind of looking at EBITDA through February, and then, then we then came along that COVID-adjusted EBITDA, taking the months that were impacted in 2020 and replacing with them with the same months in 2019. Then came run rate EBITDA, looking at the monthly EBITDA uh, after COVID's impact and, and projecting that out to an annualized number. Mm-hmm. But in oral surgery, we were using true TTM EBITDA. And because they they really performed so beautifully that their valuations were not not impacted at all by COVID, and, and oral surgery ha, has emerged as one of these not just pandemic resistant but pandemic proof specialties inside the dental world. Yeah, and I think that definitely bared out in in the multiples and valuations we were achieving in those in in oral surgery and and in ortho as well. I, I feel like valuations didn't really budge on those and earnouts or holdbacks weren't really much of a factor either because we could use their their true financial performance not just their TTM performance so those deals seemed more i guess normal just different process obviously timing of these of of our marketed process were were kind of delayed because buy side needed to dive a little deeper get more you know familiar with the numbers and maybe they historically had had to but but overall those deals Went off without a hitch for the most part. Yeah, 2020 was really something. Um, I'll speak for myself. I've never worked harder, slept less, been closer to the clients, and and felt more joy from actually getting the work done. It was the hardest M&A market I have ever been in, and it was absolutely the most rewarding as well. It was a Interesting first year. I'll just put it that. <laughs> I'll sum it up for that. It was an interesting first year for me in the uh, the dental M and A world. Um, well, look, we, we were we we're grateful to have you, and and uh, special thanks to all of our clients who who uh, enabled uh, this year. Look, we've we've covered the year that was. We're gonna cover the year that that will be in in twenty twenty one and beyond. Uh, next time we get together, and if anybody out there has thoughts or questions about what their valuation is. Um, Ryan, tell, tell us how they can get a hold of us. Yeah. Check out our, our website. You can book a call right there for my calendar, um, or you can reach out to us directly. It's just ryan at tusk-partners.com for my email. Happy to perform a, a, a Tusk valuation complimentary, get an idea of, of where we feel your, your business lies, and um, would love to just get to know you and hear about your practice. Thanks, Ryan. Again, th- thanks for being here. If you guys are out there, be safe. Thanks. That was awesome. Uh, I really want to thank Ryan Mingus for joining me on the show today. We couldn't have had the year we had without him. Really loved catching up and reminiscing on the year that was and, and really want you all to join us on the next podcast where we'll talk about the year we are in, 2021, and what to expect in the next 12 months ahead. I hope you're enjoying the show in this new format and ultimately find it highly educational. And if you do, please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, Stitcher, 
or wherever you get your podcasts. If you've got topics or questions that you'd like to see us tackle, please drop us a note at info at tusk-partners.com. And of course, if you find the podcast to be a useful resource, we hope you'll share it with friends and colleagues. Thanks again for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.